Ladies and gentlemen, before we get into this episode, I want to give a little bit of a disclaimer. Uh, originally, John and I were going to pick, uh, you know, like 10 or so horror movies to talk about that are our favorites or have meaning to us. And uh, as usual, what happens when John and I get together is the show just went in a completely much bigger direction. So there uh, are a lot of horror movies that we're going to be talking about going way back to the beginning. And uh, there's probably going to be a lot of spoilers in here. So if there's some movies that we start to talk about and you haven't seen it, uh, even though these movies have been out for a while, uh, a lot of them you may not have seen yet. They might be ones that you just never got to or ones that you're just finding out about. So uh, feel free to skip ahead, skip around the episode, um, maybe have someone else listen to it and and uh, point out some films that uh, might be spoilers for you, however you want to do it. But it is a great conversation that John and I had, and uh, it became a much bigger episode than I had originally intended. But for you guys who've been listening to the show for a while, you know that that's what happens when John and I get together. So enjoy the show and happy Halloween. Welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast Podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, here with my good buddy, John Matola. John, how are you? Hey, Scott, what's going on? Well, we're doing something a little different today. First of all, happy Halloween to you. Yeah. I'm John Lagosi Matola. Oh, classic right there. Mm, I gotta say, as, as we're recording this at the end of September... Um, uh, our temperatures went yesterday. We were 93 degrees today. Our high is 76. Wow. So I'm going to uh, unfreeze my hoodie and get it ready for, <laughs> for action. Cause I think it's time to go. Well, right now we're, um, uh, we're at rainy, rainy, drizzly and 56, but tomorrow it's supposed to be 73. So who knows? Who knows what, I, <laughs> how the weather know, works. I'm not a drug guy. I'm really not. Um, I have a beer or a drink now and then, but that's about it. I don't know what Mother Nature's on, but I want $20 worth. <laughs> uh. So you guys at the Deep Purple Podcast have are, are still continuing your streak. You've had some close calls recently oh, with, boy, uh, with missing an episode, but you have managed to pull off an episode every week for going on five years now. Congratulations. Thank you. You know, I, I tell people when they're thinking about getting into podcasting, one of the most important things is consistency. Your fans become dependent as having you as part of their schedule. Like when I was doing the Uriah Heat podcast, it was four days a week. People would walk their dog in the morning, um, listen to me on their commute. But it was very consistent, you know, and then Wednesdays always felt kind of weird to them because there was no Magicians podcast show. But I would imagine it's the same way with you guys. Your show comes out late Sunday night uh, here mm -hmm. in L.A. time. And uh, it's sometimes as soon as i see the notification I'm like great i can't wait for the new episode I, i'm gonna listen sometimes i don't listen till the morning but it has definitely become a staple in my schedule as well oh thank you that's that's great to hear yeah um yeah it, it definitely hasn't been easy uh nate and i have uh have been joking on and off air that uh we didn't realize that this past summer was going to be so challenging between uh you know vacation time work family obligations over the summer um you know that we were cutting it close because uh, anybody that knows us knows that we'll we'll bank episodes like we'll have like a two or three, you know, buffer. And we were going on like, hey, we need to record this episode in a couple of days or we have nothing. So yeah. we had to try and 
hurry up and get one going. But um, as of this recording, we banked one for the first time in in weeks, and so we're very excited. Uh, we have we have an additional one, and um, you know, as of now, uh, when this episode comes out, uh, we've um, we've actually. Um, emailed each other our schedule so we can plan actually physically plan out times so we can do our uh, you know traditional taking the month of December off from recording every week so we're um, you know we're we're coming up with schedules I'm throwing some ideas out there to make um, Hughes a ween possibly happen ooh well that would be awesome uh, and you know it's it's interesting too because you guys did have a crazy summer on top of everything else you went to Italy. And so mm-hmm. now you're recording, and you did an episode from there. So you're recording from the other side of the world. I mean, you guys are are diehard, uh, and I really, really respect and appreciate that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that yeah. was. Um, yeah, we. Um, well, I mean, I, I think that there were some really good podcasts um, that that I enjoy that occasionally will take a week off because somebody is sick or um, you know they just they don't have the time or you know whatever and it's not that often but it's just uh you know we kind of set this personal goal for ourselves like we're we're not going to do that no short of like a uh like a catastrophe that is beyond our control um you know life-changing events something like that we you know we're we're committed to pulling one off every week and and you've done it and but but when one of those shows though that you listen to does that doesn't it feel doesn't that week feel a little bit empty that um actually it's more like amnesia for me i'm like oh i don't remember recording this (laughs) you know i mean like one of the shows that you listen to when they when they take a week off for one of those reasons doesn't it kind of feel weird as a listener to not have that as part of your routine um yeah but there's also um it's also like um kind of like a sense of relief too because sometimes it's like Oh, good. It's one less podcast I have to catch up on <laughs> because sometimes I'll have a backlog of them, you know, I'll yep. be like, uh, and then there are other times where it's like, I don't have a huge backlog, but the times where I mostly do them like shit, I'm like behind on listening to like three or four shows and they're all going to be an hour, 90 minutes, two hours, some of them each. I don't listen to a lot of short podcasts except yours, you know, you uh, minus the ones that I'm on. Um, right. <laughs> so it's um, sometimes it's always like a, it's a race to catch up. So sometimes somebody will take a week off and you'll be like, okay, good. That means I could cross that one off for this week and listen to these other ones. But yeah. And, and you know, I'm on a couple of podcasts now too, because I, I do uh, Backtracks Aerosmith Revisited with Corey Morissette. Mm-hmm. And uh, which you've been a guest on a couple times, and we've we've run into that same thing because now he had the hundredth anniversary of and the podcast will rock. They did like a three hour recording for that. Uh, then they had another. Wow. Uh, they finished off another album, so they did a, a rating of that album with a panel. That was another three hour show. Then he does a show with uh, Kevin Brown called the Ultimate Catalog Clash, and so he had he'd been recording episodes of that. And then we were trying to get in, uh, and then he also does uh, backtracks theme music with uh john uh, mariano so it's like he's got all these podcasts and we we started getting behind because i like to have at least one or two episodes on that show banked also because it's not 100 percent in my control i can't just whip out an episode and put it out and uh, he does all the heavy lifting on that one so i'm like man we we got to get one so we we're, we normally record on monday nights and we didn't record on monday because uh, he couldn't do it and then tuesday i think they were recording the anniversary and then wednesday or no, Tuesday, I was recording a show. 
and then Wednesday he couldn't do it and then we were like Thursday we're recording for next week's show and we're like we've never cut it this close mm -hmm. and we got nothing in the tank you know it, yeah. that just makes me nervous I don't I don't like that yeah yeah that's so you you can relate <laughs> oh for sure but we're not here to talk about other podcasts we're here to talk about horror movies because it is Halloween and uh, did this uh, a few years ago with a buddy of mine here in Vegas. And I thought, you know, you're a big fan of horror movies. You'd be a perfect mm. one to talk to about this. First, I, I, I just did a, a recorded a panel that came out uh, at the, the beginning of October, or I'm sorry, the, uh, on September 30th with the cast of a horror film that was shot in Phoenix called Maya with some uh, friends of mine that had done, done the film and some people I met for the first time. And we were talking about people that have preconceived notions when it comes to especially like independent horror film. If it's low budget, we assume the effects are gonna be crappy or it's gonna be a bad script or they're not gonna have good actors. When you see a new film pop up on whatever service you're watching, whether it be you know Hulu, Netflix, whatever, uh, and you're like, you see it's, it's not a major studio film. You kind of do you kind of like back off from it for a second go well it's an indie it could suck it could be okay it it really depends i mean um I, the the films that we're going to talk about um are from a much different mold and era and everything so if we're fast forwarding to like the present or we're staying in the present for now like streaming and um you know you can go on and just look at anything so if i'm on like uh you know, uh, Pluto, Peacock, like whatever streaming service, um, HBO Max, just pick any Netflix. Mm -hmm. You could just search for horror movies and see the newest one. And then like, I don't like, I try to like look at like reviews first of all, but I don't always rely on them because it's like, you know, what some people think stinks is like, you know, really good to somebody else. Right. Um, but I'll typically look, I mean, I won't look and see who's in it anymore. You know, mm -hmm. I'll just like kind of take a look at the, um, uh, believe it or not i think like the uh the uh the art like the what do you call it the the movie the, art oh the, the yeah the cover art mm -hmm. or like the thumbnail or whatever for the the horror movie will will draw me in uh like the maybe the title um you know read the synopsis see if it looks interesting and then you know uh these days you have a um the luxury of just putting it on and if it looks like it's not going to be good you could just turn it off it doesn't cost yeah. you anything mm -hmm. right it's not like you paid to go into the theater or paid to go to the the video store and rent it like we used to so i think it makes it a lot easier to kind of cycle through and like take that chance so i do take a lot more chances than i think i would have um because i mean i i bought i think i told you i recently watched a couple that i thought were not that bad but it's like you can kind of tell by like the like the picture quality um you know the the acting um if anything says like um social media influencers like you know and then i'm like nope like those are the ones that i don't like where it's just like somebody like they're all from like the point of view of somebody doing like a TikTok live or something like that yeah. i just think that those are like those feel very forced you know <laughs> like somebody's being like like cyber bullied or something and it's like kind of a found footage or a point of view of the character ones those i don't like like mm -hmm. um i mean you have to be it's got to be a really exceptional movie for me to want to see that and even like found footage type or point of view movies like from back in the day i really wasn't a big fan of like uh, like paranormal activity or blair witch and stuff like that it was never really my thing I'll tell you, I I was fascinated with the Blair Witch story because it was sold so well. I've never seen marketing like that. 
they had the documentary that was on, I think, the Sci-Fi Channel. I mean, it, it was they did everything to make it so believable. And I kept the premise in my head of there's no way the families of these people are going to allow footage of their deaths to be seen. Like, that was the thing I kept hanging on to. Like, there's no way this could be real. And I went to the theaters. I was living in Denver at the time. And I went to the midnight showing. And it was foggy out, which which was not a common occurrence for uh, for Denver. But it, it would happen every once in a while. So there's this mist out. I lived right off of Lake Marsden. So I've, I've got the woods. I've got the lake. I've got the mist. It's the midnight showing. It's mm. in the auto, like the perfect setup to go see this movie. And uh, and I go in, I sit in my chair, I'm waiting, and there's people just filing in. And then there's people sitting on the floor. And I'm like, what the fuck? They oversold the theater. Wow. And so, you know, through the whole movie, everything was quiet. And then the movie ends, the lights come up, nobody moves, nobody says a word. It's just, everyone's frozen. And still in my head, I'm like, that wasn't real. Very well done, but not real. And then in the silence, you hear this one woman just say this. Get me the hell out of here. And then everybody stood up and they're pushing through the door. Like it was like the cue. Like everybody's like, yeah, I need to get out of here right fucking now. Wow. It was it was that was probably more of an intense experience than the movie itself was. Mm. But the brilliance of it was the marketing. I mean, just, just absolutely amazing. So when they announced the second one was being made, uh, I was really excited. And then I was disappointed because I found out it wasn't the original filmmakers. And I'm like, all right, here we go. Off, off. Uh, you know, it's it's going to be a moneymaker thing now. Right. And so I remember sitting in the theater with my brother and he goes, if this movie starts with rock music, it's going to suck. Every movie that's a horror movie that starts out with rock music sucks. And sure enough... <laughs> There comes the guitars. Oh no! And, and it wasn't that good. I, the the premise of it was okay, um, but it, it really wasn't that good. And I'm mm. I'm surprised that they haven't that they didn't try to make another one because the original guys wanted to do a prequel and tell the Ellie Kedward story, mm. uh, but instead somebody just came and rebooted it and did a shitty job. And there you go. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm not surprised. But um, but it made me think about like the the 70s where there wasn't a huge precedence for really intense horror movies like the exorcist or halloween and i remember my mom telling me stories of going to see the original halloween and people just running from the theater or you know just like throwing up from being just scared or like having physical reactions and i think what do you have to do to somebody nowadays because we're i think we're really desensitized by it now yeah i mean um i think that um um, and I mean, uh, that I think it's, um, yeah, let's just, um, let's just stay in the present. You know, I was like, um, I, I think that that's a, a good place to start. Right. Mm-hmm. Is, um, I was, I, I heard, or I was reading somewhere recently, like within the past few days. And I, I can't remember where it was from. Whereas is, um, Halloween and trick or treating isn't like what it used to be. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that like, um, they said that like, uh, you know, the whole, the whole cosplay aspect of life has has become so year round that like 
doing it like getting dressed up on Halloween and going out trick-or-treating or going to costume parties doesn't seem to be as big of a culture as it used to be because I mean if you if you think and I mean I, I kind of agree too and I mean I don't know how much of it too is is like you know me getting older and like not doing it myself or you know um you know having um you know uh, my, my nieces don't live here so I don't get to experience that with them you mm-hmm. know what they do but um, how big of a culture is it really anymore? Because, I mean, you su- see people like, you know, on, on social media and, you know, like Comic Cons and stuff like that, like all different times a year doing that kind of thing. And so it almost kind of takes like the the unique nature out of, you know, this is the one day of year, the day year that you get to dress up and be something else and, you know, do that. And so it's just like I kind of feel that that's, you know, that's down that same road mm-hmm. that you were talking about. This is just like it's not... You know, it kind of lost that um, unique quality, um, you know, somewhere along the way, like, you know, in the, the present day um, is, is that, um, you know, what do you what do you need to do uh, to, to have it be special now? Right. You know? Well, yeah, that makes I hadn't really thought about that, but that makes a lot of sense. And you're right. And, and you look at like uh, I get uh, for some reason, I get a lot of TikTok videos in my uh, Instagram feed. And it's, mm, there's a lot yeah. of that. There's a lot of just people dressing up in costumes for no reason just to do yeah. it. And um, you're right. That really does take. But but I mean, people our age wouldn't trick or treat. But I do have a couple of friends that are very like every year. They're like, man, I really want to do something good this year and very much into Halloween. But they are not people that do something else throughout the year. They 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 don't cosplay. They don't go to Comic-Con, uh, that kind of thing. But yeah, I, I guess it, it would come back to then just the freshness for little kids where right. they're just discovering it and what Halloween would be for them. But they're probably going to have dress up days at school more so than we did. And, you know, more events like we're taking the kids to Comic-Con this weekend. And right. They're, they're not. Yeah. They're probably going to be less sensitive to it than we were. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, before we get into the movie picks, and I don't know if you have any, but I have a couple of honorable mentions that that aren't really horror movies that I think are kind of thought of that way. Uh, the first one is uh, a little movie called Stephen King's It. And I'm talking about the original uh, mm. one that was done. Um, I had the pleasure of having drinks with the composer. He won a Grammy for that score. Uh, it was one of the two scores that inspired me to get into film composition. Um, and he, I can't remember if I mentioned it casually or if he asked me, but I said, you know, this film is not a horror film. It's a thriller, but it's not really a horror film. Mm. Um, and he said, thank you. I didn't score it that way. And he didn't. You know, there's a lot of like happy circus music in there that's just creepy enough, but kind of falls into the happy circus mode. Um, but it's it's thought of as horror, I think, just because it's Stephen King. Mm-hmm. But Stand By Me wasn't horror. And that was Stephen King. Right. You know, uh, but it was but very I, intense, you know. It was very intense, but I, I really don't look at it as a horror film. I look at it as like just a good thriller. Yeah, I, I would agree. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I, I just remember it was very like because you know Stephen King could be, um, uh, you know, his, the, depending on how a filmmaker interprets it as well, could be, you know, very, um, just have a, a type of feel to it, not necessarily horror, but just kind of this, this kind of underlying like brooding type of feeling but you know maybe maybe a thriller maybe unsettling but not necessarily like you know what you would consider a horror movie right exactly the next one i want to mention is a movie called tusk 
I just recently saw this. This was directed by Kevin Smith, who is not a horror director. Not not at all. But the premise is that Justin Long is this, uh, I don't know if he was a podcaster or a DJ or, or what, but he's like one of those over the top you know, type type characters. And he ends up going to Canada and, and goes meets the, this guy. Uh, and it's it's a whole setup. And the guy like physically turns him into a walrus. He's like, I, I, I miss yeah. my walrus. And did you see it? I I did, I did, and it was very. I, I thought it was really disturbing. <laughs> but that's it. It it was disturbing, but it wasn't a horror movie. It was almost borderline comedy, in some ways, because Kevin Smith has those kind of characters, like mm-hmm. the yoga hosers girls were in it, and and then he had the the meeting at the restaurant with with Justin Long's friends, and um, that that was like over the top type characters. And I'm like, if he really buckled this down. This could have been an amazing horror movie. Mm-hmm. And I really feel like it was a huge missed opportunity because he didn't go that route. It's not his thing. Right. And there's rumors he's making a second one. Hmm. I don't know where you go with it from there. but <laughs> Yeah, right. But, um, you know. Well, I mean, yeah, that's I, I see what you mean, where it's like it, it starts off that way and then goes in a different direction. And you kind of think for the, the remainder of the time, it's like, oh, if it only if it only stayed on this one, that first track, then it could have been like a great horror movie. And instead it went off into being just like bizarre or like almost borderline comedy or who even who even knows what you can't even cl- cl- classify it. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but at first I was like, you know what? He's he's kind of an ass. I don't mind that this is happening to him that much. But then <laughs> by the end of it, you kind of do feel sorry for him. But there was there was like half the movie. I'm like, I kind of don't care that this happened to this guy because he's so <laughs> over the top and so manipulating and judgmental that I'm like, you know, if it's going to happen to somebody, I'd rather happen to somebody like that than like the nice girl who was just on her way home from the grocery store getting, you know, for her sick child or whatever. Um, I think it's a better premise for me when it's somebody I don't care that something mm. bad happens to them. I'm 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 a little bit distant. I'm able to be a little distant from it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I know what you mean. Um, I I think a true though um, horror movie um, is where you. Um, I mean, I I personally like, um, and I think a lot of people do put put themselves in the main character's shoes, thinking like, oh my god, like I can't like I I would I would die if that happened to me, or I would be terrified if that happened to me, or if yeah. that were me, how would I get it? That's why a lot of times people just be like, no, don't go, don't go upstairs, like you know, go out the side or something like that like you're yelling at the screen for like what you would do um so and that i think that's a direct uh you know impact on like you know a lot of movies will will have you put yourself in the main character's shoes and 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 you know kind of empathize with them it's just like you almost feel like it's happening to you and that's why it's so scary yeah to me if i can watch a movie and not realize i'm watching a movie like, because mm-hmm. a lot of times I'll just have something on and I'll kind of more listen to it than watch it. But if I actually just sit down and watch a movie and I don't see the edge of the screen, they've got me inside the movie. You know, I don't realize I'm in a theater or I'm in my home watching a television screen. I'm like, I'm, I'm dialed in, you know? Yeah. Um, it does feel like it's happening to you. And I think part of the key to that is so many horror movies bank on isolation. Right. Yeah. That's why so many of them are shot in the woods because you don't, you can't run to the police station and get immediate help. You don't have neighbors whose doors you can knock on and hope they're home or hope they'll help you. 
the isolation trick is very big in horror. And it works very well because also you as a viewer, you feel isolated with whoever that main character is. Mm-hmm. And I really like that. But it's kind of been done to death. Well, that's why, you know, in order to in order to go forward, you have to go backwards and see where it's all built on. So my question to you is um, how far back do you go into um, your horror movie knowledge and uh, your your love for scary movies? Like what's what's the oldest one that you like? Uh, well, I have this one and then a huge gap. So I'll premise it with that. <laughs> the original Nosferatu. Okay, so that's, yeah, that's near the beginning. Uh, That that movie, a part of it, I think, is the way looking at the footage now, how grainy and, you know, the the wash of white coming in, in and out of the film. I think that almost makes it even more intense. But I remember the first time I saw that footage was in the video Under Pressure that David Bowie did with Queen. For, For whatever reason, they had shots of that film. And I asked my mom what it was. And she goes, oh, that's that's Nosferatu. She saw that in the theater. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I can't imagine, again, no sensitivity or, or just 100% sensitivity to horror films at the time because they didn't have the precedence that we do when we go to a movie now. That right. must have just been the most horrific thing to watch in the theater and, and, at the time. And that's, um, and I mean, that's really the beginning of that because a lot of the original horror movies came um, uh from uh, German expression, uh, expressionistic, uh, expressionistic cinema. Sorry, I can't get it out. <laughs> um, which um, you know, uh, a lot of it visually had to do with like the the contrast between a uh, light and shadow, and uh, you know, just really had this sense of like foreboding to it. And so, a lot of the early horror films were um, uh, based on that. So, like Nosferatu, for instance, was a uh, that was a German expressionist horror film. Um, which was a, um, you know, a, a silent film, and uh, you know relied on a lot of those you know techniques, like a lot of like um, you know light and dark, a lot of like scary imagery, yeah. um, and I mean you have to think too that like you know you watch it now and you can't you can't put yourself in like the present mind frame. You have to watch it and kind of like be in that mindset for it. Is is like how would people back where there was like no social media no like you seeing everything or knowing everything you just see these these crazy images on screen and a lot of it you know uh, the the typical public wouldn't understand too because i mean you know they don't understand the the uh, the, the contrast that's going on you know visually or um you know a lot of them would be um i can't remember offhand if it had a um a musical score. I know a lot of silent films had like a like a live musical score. Yeah, right. Um, you know, um, as well, but just um, you know, seeing it that way, um, and just being like, what, like, what the hell is this? With like no point of reference, and that's what made it so scary. Is is because there was a lot less connectivity and knowledge back then, and that's what made those movies scary. Is is also because um, you know, jumping ahead to the, you know, the slasher films like. You know, um, like fifty some odd years later, um, it was really what was implied back then, as opposed to like having actual gore on the screen. Right. So just like you know, Count uh, Nosferatu or you know Count, uh, I think it was Count Orlock. You know, just like doing that, like just coming up like stiff as a board, just like coming up from his coffin and everything. You're just like, what the fuck is this? You know, it's right. like 
crazy. Yeah. And from a point of view of now, you look at it and some of the things you're just like, how did they achieve these effects back then? And like, I mean, if you look at it and you're like, oh, it's this creaky old black and white movie with like bad effects and everything, you're not going to enjoy it. Yeah. If it's um, like Plan 9 from Outer Space where you can see the string on the UFO. Right. Yeah. Right. But I mean, this was actually done with like, you know, with intent and, um, and, um, you know, I'd actually seen it um, and gotten it on multiple DVD versions over the years with like these different like orchestral scores on it. I remember at some point, you know, when I was younger, they had had it um, playing um, in like a theater around here with like a live score, like a restored print type of thing. It was very cool uh, to see it that way. Um, but that was um, widely considered to be like that. And um, there was the, um, the, um, I can't remember the Lon Chaney movie. Um, um, we're, we're, you know, widely considered like some of the first horror movies. Well, um, he was, and he was a master. I mean, that guy would put himself through all kinds of things to, but, but thinking about what you said, like how the movies were made, a lot of the effects of things that were done back then were, I mean, they were all practical because they didn't have any computer generation or anything, but right. thinking about like when you see the guy that's hanging out on the pole over the side of the building, yeah, that building's only a half a story high, but he's really on that pole. Right. You know, and when he when the when the bus drives by and he grabs it, the the you know, side pole and swings himself onto the back of the bus, that's really a guy doing that. There there's no special effect there. That's really the bus driving by and him grabbing the pole and swinging himself onto the back. Very dangerous stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no no CGI and stuff like yeah. that. But a lot of a uh, lot of a uh, sleight of hand, you know, type of stuff. Yeah. Um, but but in terms of the the impact of it the one thing I don't know is what books were people reading back then? So did they get their experience in horror and maybe a little bit of desensitizing through reading books and using their own imagination? And then the stuff comes out on the screen and they're like, okay, now this is the kind of stuff I've been reading about coming to life. Or was this really like a first time experience? I mean, I would like to I would like to think, too. And I mean, I used to I mean, I got into horror when I was like, you know, really young. And, um, you know, when I was in um, in uh, like junior high and high school and everything, I bought like every book that I could get my hands on about horror movies. So, I mean, my knowledge is like, you know, I have to kind of dust it off for this. But, um, you know, I think that a lot of people back then were just like reading a lot more than they were seeing. I mean, like when, like the, um, you know, especially the twenties, like after the great depression was, um, um, you know, people were, um, I mean the, the popular theme around then, you know, if you read historically is, is that like after the great depression, uh, or when the beginning of the great depression, a lot of people were into escapism. So they were like going to the movies and drove. That's when cinema was huge. Yeah. Um, prior to that, it was big. It was, a, it was more of a novelty because it was like, um, it was before talkies, you know? And so I think it was around like 19, uh, 1929. Like they had, I think it was that the first talkie with the, the Al Jolson. Um, Oh um, yeah. Um, how come I can't think of what it's called? Uh, um, it's escaping me. Um, I should know this. <laughs> well, like you said, you're you're dusting off uh, old old uh, info there. Yeah, it was. Um, come on, I know this. It was the jazz singer. That's it. I was gonna say the wedding was singer. It really? 
the, <laughs> the wedding singer, yeah, slightly yeah, the, different movie. Yeah, the first, the, yeah, the first talking picture was the jazz singer, 1927. So uh -huh. that's, um, and then the rest of the studios were really trying to keep up with that. And so in the late 20s to the, um, you know, early 30s, like they were really trying to crank them out, and like a lot of, um, you know, the acting and like the, um, um, the the audio was very kind of off because people were doing stage acting so they were just like these big exaggerated motions and like um you know and they didn't know how to speak and they didn't know how to mic yeah. things so a lot of those early talkies were really bizarre to say the mm -hmm. least you know just like uh, almost laughable some of them but um you know as um you know as you got into the um, you know, the 30s, that was where the golden age of horror movies started, and that's where I got into them. And uh, the first, you know, because I, I, like, was telling you before the show that I split my love for horror movies into, like, three segments, and the first one is the 30s and the 40s, mm -hmm. which the 30s I like better because they were, um, I felt really, you know, it, like, really heavy on that German expressionistic cinema, you know, the, um, you know, they got the really, the, the atmosphere of the movies were really down, like, um, Frankenstein, Dracula, um, you know, the, the, uh, the big ones were the, um, the Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff films, especially yeah. where they starred together mm -hmm. were like my favorites because I'm like, oh, those are the, those are the giants, you know, there was like, you know, the, the two, you know, and the first one that I saw them in was actually not even one of their more famous films it was called the Raven, which was from 1935. And a lot of people, um, you know, kind of consider that to be a very kind of like pedestrian effort, you know, not a lot of atmosphere to it. And Karloff had top billing and he wasn't even like, like really considered the star in that movie. It was really Lugosi's vehicle. And I always really loved him because he was just a very, you know, um, you know, English was not his first language. He was a stage actor. So he had a lot yeah. of those big, you know, like movements and like you know the way mm -hmm. he spoke was like a result of that so that's why the whole like you know it's and he had like... such a great voice for it too because he had yes. that kind of deep vo boisterous voice uh but but so now that now that you're saying that though i have to think that there were uh horror novels and things prior to this because well thinking like edgar Allan poe was before all of that yeah um, and a so lot of stuff was came that from the Raven based on Poe's or was this a different Raven? No, it was. It was the Raven okay. based off of Poe's Raven. And that's why I think a lot of these were like Dracula was based off of like Bram Stoker's Dracula. But the, the version we know with Lugosi and it was based off of the stage play mm. uh, version, which he starred in. And I was reading, you know, I remember reading a book about it and just like getting these vivid images of thinking like, wow, like... The stage play like i wish i could have seen the stage play in the late 20s because that sounded so much cooler than what the movie was mm -hmm. um just like the stuff visually they did and like you know how you know he presented himself which is what he brought to the role which is why it seems so exaggerated and over the top is because yeah. he really they had to tell him to tone it down <laughs> <laughs> you know for film because film act acting and stage acting are two different things yeah and um and i think that there was a lot of that like um you know they had they had the raven they had dracula they had um oh um i want to say i was at the cabinet of dr caligari um there were the, there were there were the a mummy, bunch of like the mummy was a little bit later was that right around that time no the mummy was early 30s as well with like okay. that was another one with uh karloff which you know was um definitely like um that was a whole different atmosphere um too it's like um i but i definitely do think that they came from 
you know, uh, from from works and novels. A lot of stuff came from like H.P. Lovecraft and Edgar Allan Poe and like, you know, those yeah. kind of like Mary Shelley, you know, the Frankenstein. Mm. Right. Um, so a lot of it came from like these these works from like the, you know, 1800s and stuff. But um, like you had something like like Dracula and Frankenstein, which were very atmospheric and like a horror, like a supernatural type of way. And then you had something like the mummy, which was supernatural too. But the setting was like uh, like an like an um, it started off in like a, I think that they were doing an archaeological dig in like Egypt or something. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing, like the the kind of Egyptian symbols and like you know uh, going into the tomb and everything like that, it, it had a different it had a different kind of uh, kind of a horror element to it yeah. than you know the cobwebs and the dark castle of Dracula or the the uh, the the laboratory of Frankenstein like but they were still in that same mold so you had uh, you had those guys like uh, Dracula uh, Frankenstein the mummy the Wolfman mm -hmm. uh, was another one which was great because that was based on like uh, like lore right and um, I don't know if you um, if you remember that but there was the the old gypsy. Um, you've seen it a long time ago, yeah. So there was a part where the old gypsy, who was the Bella Lugosi, was in that with a bit part, and Lon Chaney Jr. was the Wolf Man, and the old gypsy, who was Bella's mother, and his character was Bella. Um, she recited this, you know, this uh, this poem or this like this kind of like um, like a curse or a saying, and it sounded like very, you know ancient and old and odd oh, where did that come from and it turns out that like you know in the all the reading that i did was is like the the screenwriters just kind of came up with it you know and you you think like oh it's this old like you know werewolf thing like you know kind of an ashes to ashes you know dust to dust type of thing and they were just right, like yeah. you know as the water runs into the sea and it's very poetic and you're just like wow where did that like how old is that and they're just like yeah they came up with it in the 40s <laughs> right, like, oh, right wow. yeah well but, i mean, I mean it, very imagine creative. like being the first person or the first group of people to to go into the tombs in egypt and see a mummy and you open up the sarcophagus and you see all these bandages like the hell is this <laughs> you know yeah. I mean, that must have been just a shocking but you let know, alone it coming to life, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a, a stretch to take that concept then and turn it into something that that would scare people. <clears throat> but I, I look at the original Frankenstein movie, and I mean, obviously, it's it's huge commentary on society, and and I think what plays today, you know, if if somebody were to see a creep, we hear about you know cryptids and Bigfoots and all this that people see and they shoot at it or they're terrified of it and and all this. I'm like, it's really no different than Frankenstein because they didn't know he had humanity they didn't know he was a compassionate person they didn't right. understand all that you know and he didn't mean to kill the girl it happened but he he just didn't understand his own body you know um i don't i don't know that i i, I mean i know it's categorized as a horror movie but i don't really know that i see it that way i kind of see it more like a twilight zone episode hmm. yeah i mean i guess there were some classic scenes in frankenstein that um are uh, you know, considered horror, like the the uh, the the scene where he's coming to life. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, the scene where he's getting chased by the villagers, and uh, you know they they set the castle on fire. Mm -hmm. um, you know that type of thing. But everything in between, it's very like it's very poignant. You know, because you have this, and that's a th the thing that a lot of horror movies now I don't I think don't have is just kind of like that sympathetic character, because like you said, he doesn't. You know, he's 
you know, he's in an outrage because he doesn't know what's happening to him. And he's just right. kind of walking around and he's trying to understand, like, you know, friend and uh, being alone and like who he can trust, who he can't trust. And then, you know, he has no control over his emotions when things don't go his way. Right. Um, he doesn't understand what happened when he drowned the girl and. You know, and then so you almost feel bad for him at the end when the villagers are chasing him and he's just like running away like, what the fuck did I do? I don't know. Yeah, (laughs) he doesn't even know how to operate his own body, let alone, you know, everything else. And so I I really look at that as more of a tragedy, a tragic tale than I do a a horror movie. But but then if I go back and think about, okay, when this came out, what was the standard of a horror? I mean, obviously, yeah, it would have been a terrifying film for people to see this creature coming to life. Which obviously, by the way, was the inspiration for uh, Darth Vader the first time that Darth Vader rises in the suit in, in uh, Return, mm-hmm. uh, Revenge of the Sith. Um, very obviously, that mm-hmm. that Frankenstein moment recreated in space. Um, but you know, and the other thing too is the editors. I mean, here the editors have been working with the silent film, and then all of a sudden, they're like, oh yeah, you got to do sound too. By the way, and like, yeah, you just doubled my workload. <laughs> Yeah, you know. but I mean, you think from like say 1927 to like when these movies came out, like 1930, 31, 32. I mean, that's like what three, four, five years of them trying to have to perfect that, and like, mm-hmm. you know, you see some of these movies, and you're just like, well, I mean, you know, it's obviously not up to the standard of today, but just keep your brain back then, and yeah. it's like, wow, they really, you know, progressed with like, you know, acting, dialogue, like different sound effects, like really quickly and like mm-hmm. you know i did a great job with it because you also had to add in like scoring with that too because right. you're scoring a movie and you have the dialogue and you know a lot of the um and i mean we could spend all day talking about this like how the you know how all this works with the movies but that mm-hmm. would have to be that would have to be another episode <laughs> right, yeah but, but, but you're um, absolutely right and i think nowadays even though we have special effects i think it's harder to come up with something that hasn't already been done Whereas then there was nothing, there, there was nothing preceding right. it. There was no, yeah, we did that in the last movie. It was like, I have an idea and we're going to do this on this one or whatever, because there was no precedent. Right, right. And I mean, and I think that, uh, you know, people, people didn't know what to expect because, you know, they, they didn't have all this stimulus, you know, they, they weren't bombarded with, yeah. um, with, uh, with uh, stuff from, from uh, Instagram and TikTok and and YouTube and uh, you know streaming and, and and just being able to see everything. So when you did go there, that was your one time to see like this these crazy stunts and sleight of hand and you know done from like with like editing and stuntmen and whatever else. And um, so that's why like you know uh, I know that they're pretty obvious picks, but like those Universal ones like Dracula, the Wolfman. Mm-hmm. Um, Frankenstein, the Mummy, are some of my favorites. The Raven was definitely my first favorite. That's one to check out. Whereas, it's like Lugosi is a doctor who builds. For some reason, he just has this insane obsession with Poe's torture devices and builds a museum of them mm. in his house, mm. and winds up having a group of people over for the weekend and like, like uh, you know, lures them into the basement and you know, like, gets them into these torture devices which is a pretty wild concept if you think about it for 1935, right? Yeah. Um, and then at the end, like, you know, he was, um, he winds up getting, you know, um, spoiler alert, <laughs> he, <laughs> he winds up getting thrown into the room where the walls are closing in on him and, um, you know, he gets trapped. Like, you know, somebody, you know, escapes and like is able to trap him. 
and I read a lot of things where it's just like when he's screaming at the end, is he screaming in horror or is he screaming in ecstasy because Oh yeah. Because he's so obsessed with Poe that like his mm-hmm. death would be like the culmination of like everything that he was obsessed with, or is he like really or is he scared that he's ready to die by his own hand, basically? Yeah, and um, that's the kind of that's the kind of movie I like that has that twist at the end that just kind of I don't know if it gives that person their just desserts or just it's like, you know, you you live by the sword, you die by the sword kind of thing. But yeah. that's another like perfect Twilight Zone episode type thing, because it always ended with that irony or that shock yeah. at the end, you know, that, that I love so much. And I know that's TV and not movie, but uh, it, it was really along those same lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And I mean, um, there was um, there was another I believe there was another Raven that was released around that time, which was um, Lugosi and Karloff, which was more of a really kind of a, a really kind of just dark, like like you were talking about movies, like say an honorable mention that, you know, is not, mm-hmm. um, you know, really a horror movie. It was a really kind of bizarre, like uh, just a visually bizarre, like conceptually bizarre movie about like um, Lugosi and Karloff were both former war, um, war buddies or like war rivals and like they like um they they met up at one of their houses and it was it was kind of one of these things where they're like you know right like yeah we used to hate each other and i'm gonna kill you he goes so come on in it was like a cat and mouse type of game like he like karloff invited lugosi into his house and he stayed there but the whole time it was like very like fake cordial to the people around them but they're really trying to like kill each other and um, it was just a, a really kind of interesting, like, you know, um, they, I think they it might have been described as like an ultra modern for the time movie because like the sets of like, you know, Karloff's house was very like, very unusual looking, you know, um, you know, it wasn't like you just walked in. It was like, you know, a house in the in the 30s, you know, it was like the, the architecture and everything was very weird and the themes were weird. And um, interesting. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of that movie, The Edge, with uh, Alec Baldwin and Anthony Hopkins, where mm-hmm. uh, they, you know, that's not the one I'm thinking of. Um, it was the one with John Travolta where he was a Russian soldier. Oh, I don't know. I can't remember who the other guy was that was in it. Anyway, it was it was kind of like that. Like, he invited him into his house. He saved him. He's like, no, I'll take care of you. But he had, like, screwed him over in the in the war, and he was really just going to kill him. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I, yeah I like that was that concept. pretty much it. Yeah. Um, now, I, I don't know if this is moving up too far for you, so feel free to, to dial it back if you want. But I think about uh, it's not on my list, but I think about a movie like Psycho, mm-hmm. where you're still in the black and white era, but that movie didn't really show you much, but you still got the horror out of it, which is kind of like that Blair Witch style. They never showed you the monster. Right. With with this, I mean, they kind of did, but you didn't see the actions like you didn't see Janet Lee getting all slashed up. You saw right. her face. You saw some blood splatter. You saw some some Anthony Perkins, but you didn't see the murder. And that was. Um, yeah. So if we want to. Um, yeah. If we want to jump ahead to that, that would be. You Is know, that going next... too far for you? No, because I was okay. going to say, like, just to just to wrap up, like what I was 
saying too was is like when you got from the 30s into the 40s um especially you know universal was like you know pairing all the monsters together so you had like dracula's house featuring frankenstein and the mummy and they'd all be in it together or like abbott and costello meet frankenstein it got yeah. very diluted or like the mummy part seven you know and it's like right. um you know after a while they would just started to kind of crank them out so they were like um they were they were good for a watch but you know none of those were my favorites I, I feel like every every period has gone through that. Okay, we, yeah. we've got money. Let's let's jump on it real quick while people are still interested. Let's start cranking out slasher films. Let's start cranking out saw films. You know that yeah. that sort of thing. And that that happened as as far back then. Oh as yeah, then, yeah. My favorite version of The Raven was actually on The Simpsons when it was Homer and Bart, and yes. uh, I think it was Kelsey Grammer that narrated that, if I'm not mistaken. Um, no, I think it was James Earl Jones. Oh, you're right. It was James. Yes. Earl Jones. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, close, close. Yeah, um, you know, he would, he would have done a good job. But yeah, you're right, James Earl Jones. Uh, yep. But Psycho, Psycho was another uh, isolation yeah. movie. So that's yeah. where your your start. I think that might even be one of the first uh, isolation movies, where they're you know they just they took her and she's in a motel. She's with some strange guy running it, completely helpless to his whims. And I mean, uh, yeah, and I mean Hitchcock is really interesting because I mean he's another one could spend an entire several episodes talking about him but at that point he was doing alfred hitchcock presents and so he was doing movies like you know and like lush technicolor and all these big productions and everything and then for this one he said well i want to use i want to use the technology we're doing for the show for the tv show like he's he specifically wanted to dial it back from the bigger production he's he was doing to make it more like uh like a horror movie Mm-hmm. Um, which I mean, I think worked out really well. And, um, you know, one of, and I mean, you know, Hitchcock movies from like, um, from that to the, uh, uh, the birds to, um, you know, just, um, God, I, I could, I can, uh, name any of them, um, uh, North by Northwest, um, um, there was skip vertigo is another one. Yep they're not horror movies per se but if you wanted to have like a scary movie night then you would you would include those oh for sure they're very they have that movies and yeah they have the, that the element thing, yeah the thing i loved about the birds is that it was a it was an element that you couldn't really defend yourself against because you're talking nature now you yeah. know it's one thing you got some guy chasing you or whatever there's certain things you might be able to do to defend yourself you're talking nature it just comes out of nowhere. And right. I, I have to give Hitchcock absolute props for taking that movie on because any director uh, who's worked with animals said, I'll never do that again. Yeah. Even if it's just one, like the guy that directed Stigmata, I remember on the commentary track, he's like, don't work with animals. He had one bird to deal with, <laughs> you know, <laughs> one. Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, I have to applaud Hitchcock <clears throat> for making that movie look and feel as incredible as it did because that was a breakthrough. And I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that he was good at um, at um, really uh, making disturbing films, which could be interpreted as horror films. So this one is disturbing on many levels, which we could get into. But talking specifically about the isolation and the horror scene, when you get to the scene where Janet Lee is murdered in the shower, you see the knife and you see the different edits, but you never see the knife go in. And there have been a lot of reports where people are just like, oh, I couldn't watch that scene where she was stabbed. And it's like, if you watch the movie, you yeah. never saw her getting stabbed. You only saw her getting, it suggested getting stabbed and you heard the sound effects. Yep. You heard the score, you saw the the editing and it was done in a way where 
you know, uh, you didn't see, you didn't actually see her getting murdered like a slasher film. So it was, it was kind of a precursor to slasher films, a really smart way of doing, mm-hmm. you know, slasher without it being that way. So you never actually saw anybody in that movie uh, getting, um, getting murdered. Right. Yeah, it, it's like like the, on uh, film, the infamous chainsaw scene in Scarface, where everybody's like, "Oh my god, that scene was so crazy!" I'm like, "You never saw anything. Watch mm-hmm. it again. You saw nothing." But they they do such a good job of implanting the experience of being there in your head mm-hmm. that you think you did see it, and that right. sells tickets. Then you're you're like telling your buddy, "Dude, like this movie is crazy. You got to go see it. You won't believe it." And they come out and they're like, "What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> I never saw yeah. it." Uh, it, but I think the sound design also was a big part of that. And I don't know what they used, if they used like a melon, uh, like a, a butcher knife into yeah, a melon or I something. I think so. He used, I think if I can remember right, it was a cassava melon. Mm, that would make sense. Yeah. Right. Which, and, which he used. And there was very, because I remember reading about that was like very, I think that was the title of like a chapter of a book or something. <laughs> it was like um, talking about that. Well, let's talk about sound design for a second, because this plays a huge role in, in these films, what we're talking about. If you go back and you really pay attention, and I even think about movies like Rocky, the sound of a punch in Rocky is nothing like what it sounds like when you hit somebody in the face. Like it just doesn't sound anything like it. Yeah. But you feel the impact because the sound is powerful. It's got a crunch to it and you're just thinking bones breaking. That's how hard they're hitting each other. There's a whole psychological factor to it. I've done some sound design work and I can tell you, it's really interesting how creative what you actually are using to what you're using it for mm-hmm. really is. See, now, isn't like knowing that I was going to ask you, like there is um, I, I had um, I had heard about something um, a while ago, whereas in some scenes in movies, not just horror movies, when they need to have that under underlying feeling of dread that they have like uh, like a low tone going in that scene to kind of give the audience like that kind of feeling of like being unsettled yeah. so what what is that called uh i don't know if there's a specific name for it i think it just depends on what you use to do it but the, the yeah. strategy is basically you don't want people to even notice it right you just like it's not loud enough in the mix where you you're like hey there's a tone all of a sudden but it's something that that almost imperceptibly creeps into your ears and you feel it. Because right. here's the thing about film score. Unless you're specifically highlighting something, say Jaws, where you're using the cello to, to cue the shark, is, is something's going on with the shark. Or you want people to think something's going on with the shark. So unless you're using it for something like that, the underscore of a movie is not designed to be heard. It's designed to be felt. Right. And so when you have a frequency or something that you pump into it, like even a theremin, could you could just have like that little one note or just a little waver in it. And you don't really want people to notice it. And then all of a sudden you're like, what just stopped? Something changed because the sound stops, but you didn't know it was there. You just know something changed and something changed dramatically. Uh, it's, it's a very powerful thing. Um, there was a, a thing called uh, Hardware Wars back in the, the 80s where they showed you a video. It's like a, a knockoff of Star Wars. And um, they showed you the video on one side of the screen. On the other side of the screen, they showed you all this, the things they were using to do the sound design. Mm-hmm. So like for, for a punch in Rocky, it would be like somebody cracking celery, you know, and, and then they take that and they do several different samples and then they layer that into the film. 
Um, but it was like they were using everything from an egg beater to a, a like a um, uh, like an, like different things on an exercise machine. I mean, it was really amazing to watch the creativity of how they actually put these sounds together. Mm-hmm. But when you're watching a film, you know, in the real world, they're not stabbing somebody, but you you certainly get the impression that they are. Yeah. And like a watermelon, a cantaloupe, those kind of you know melons are very common for that because they just have that that sound that we now associate with murder. Right. Right. It would just be like the the sound of a knife coming out of like somebody's belt when you hear that like that that kind of like clink that ching, you know, mm-hmm. and you know that it's just like if I had a knife and like a saber or something, it probably wouldn't make that that noise. But I mean when you're looking on film like even like something as simple as like somebody walking you know and you hear like those footsteps really clear like the clop 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 Mm -hmm. clop i've i've seen things like that before where they they show somebody like really intentionally walking and making those noises like for film you have to accentuate those noises because it wouldn't be as effective as if you somebody was like uh just pulled a knife out or started running away and you didn't hear those kind Mm -hmm. of like exaggerated you know sounds Right. And a lot no. of times they have to do it because the audio just didn't capture the footsteps well enough. Right. Or I mean, obviously, the sound design, like with the, the stabbing, you have to because you didn't do anything on set that would actually create that sound. Um, I actually did a, a panel at Phoenix Comic Con one year that was talking about the use of music and, and, and sound in film. Mm-hmm. And uh, one one thing that I I didn't have examples of at the time, but I've seen a lot of now is when people pull out a sword or a knife you hear the sound of scraping metal, but you're not seeing it scrape anything. So we've now associated just like a knife being in the air or being pulled out of like a wooden knife rack, the sound of scraping metal, which makes absolutely no sense because if you go into your kitchen and you pull a knife out of your wooden knife rack, what sound are you hearing? You're not hearing the sound of metal scraping metal. No, you're hearing nothing. Right. (laughs) Basically. But, But that goes to the psychological factor you know, you, you're watching Scream, the guy goes into the kitchen, he pulls a knife out. It sounds so much more intense because you're right. hearing that metal scraping sound. And now it's in your head that how sharp that knife must really be for it to make that sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it's one of the most important tools in film, especially in horror. Oh, I, I agree. And I mean, I think Scream is probably any of the screams is probably um, a great example of that because when he takes out that knife, it's also a very exaggerated. He holds it like, like that overhand, like yeah. thing. He pulls it out of his out of his sheath or his belt or something, and you hear that really kind of crisp, like metal scraping sound. And I mean, mm-hmm. part of your brain, like for a split second, knows that's not the sound it makes, but I mean, it makes that the motion and like the scene more effective because you're just like, okay, that's a fucking sharp knife. <laughs> He's going to get her with it, you know? And they do the same thing in martial arts movies. I mean, I don't know if you've ever used nunchucks in your life, but I have. And I know they don't sound anything like the way that they're portrayed in film. They don't make those sounds. They just don't. Like that Uh, whipping sound? like that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you (laughs) might hear that if you're using it right by your own ear, but your opponent does not hear that. You know, right, right. But but again, you know, you're watching the film and it really just brings out the intensity of it. So it's such an important thing. But when you get to a movie like Jaws, the Revenge, where the shark is screaming because they electrocute him, sharks don't have the ability to make any sound whatsoever. They have no vocal cords. So that's where it kind of loses me is where I can you can convince me of some things. But when it's so far beyond reality. 
Yeah. You know, that's and where so, I had a hard time. So somewhere in between there and where we started is like kind of in between. You have like the 60s and the 70s where they really, they didn't quite have that technology yet. Yeah. And one of my favorites, um, which I, I, I know that I mentioned them, but I don't know if you heard of them, is like uh, Hammer Studios, like Hammer Films of the 60s and 70s. So are you familiar? A little bit, yeah. So those were some of my favorites because those were like gothic horrors, you know, where they they started off doing like these um, kind of, um, I, I think it was like, you know, uh, like historical or war movies. Like the Hammer Studios was like, you know, uh, based in England. Mm -hmm. And um, and so like around like the late 60s, they were looking back on the universal movies that we talked about in the 30s and 40s and said, well, we're going to remake these as horrors and using these really like classically trained, like like wonderful actors like Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing were like great, great, like Shakespearean oh, level yeah. actors. Right. And to think that they like and they did tons of these films like together and separately. And to think that they lent their talents to like these type of films, which horror movies were looked on as is like, you know, like the low like bottom feeder of movies you know never taken seriously it's like th those guys elevated those movies um to like anything so they redid uh dracula christopher lee was dracula right. totally yeah. different you know like he didn't do the you know the romantic cape and everything he had the bloodshot eyes and like you know the fangs and he was very like very violent dracula um he was also the mummy um um, they redid uh, Frankenstein, where uh, Christo, uh, uh, Peter Cushing was uh, Doctor Frankenstein, and it was very like very Victorian era, very gothic. So it was a, it was a different type of feel, uh, very British, you know, type of thing. Um, the feel that those movies had. There was like Brides of Dracula, which is um, you know um, um, another one of my favorites. Um, and um you know so they had a whole ton of movies like that they they even did a kind of historical one in the middle rasputin the mad monk oh wow uh, which was christopher lee as rasputin which it wasn't as much of a horror film but you know just really portrayed him as just this just this violent disruptive person and it's it just it had the same feel as those other movies right um so they did a lot of like dracula's frankenstein's you know kind of monsters and stuff in like kind of gothic victorian style um, kind of culminating with one of my favorites, um, which was 1974, which was kind of the end of it because they were doing like late 60s, early 70s. Mm -hmm. And then probably like the early to mid 70s is when it kind of tapered off. And the last great one, in my opinion, was called Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, which was Peter Cushing's last turn as Dr. Frankenstein. And he had to hole up in a mental institution. So right off the bat, any like horror movie where like the setting is is like in a mental hospital is is like it's gonna be gold you know oh yeah especially back then because mental hospitals yeah. were like dingy and dark and yeah you know, everything that you would uh, associate with like an old medieval castle you know, so with... yeah so it yeah so it was great so the basically the you know quick rundown was is that there was a younger guy who was reproducing frankenstein's experiments mm -hmm. um somebody found him out um, he was thrown in the insane asylum because they're just like, you know, you're, you know, this is a crime against humanity. Finds out that Frankenstein is there working like under an alias. He actually didn't die. He was there continuing his work undercover in the asylum. Um, and so he took this guy on as his protege and they built a monster out of the some of the inmates. Like, you know, he identified some of the inmates as like 
this inmate has like you know skilled hands this one has like a a, a brilliant brain even though they were insane cobbled right. together this monster who winds up terrorizing the mental hospital and uh you know they had to wind up destroying him mm-hmm. and then at the very end they're just like frankenstein was like well he goes next time it'll be better and he goes what do you mean next time and he was just like well you know you don't think i've given up yet and then he just, you know, starts sweeping up and he's like, what do you think about, uh, you know, such and such in cell three? You know, he's just like he has he has like he has strong hands or something. And then you just see the other guy like looking off into the distance like, oh, my God, this guy's obsessed. He is never going to stop. And then it just pans out. And that's the end. Wow. And, then you're, and you're just like, whoa. And that's that's probably one of like probably one of my favorite horror movies of all time. Definitely check it out. Well, that, uh, the mad scientist was a was a big theme back then too. And yeah. now, now, where did Vincent Price land in all of this? Because he was a big. Wasn't he working with them on those films? He he wasn't in the uh, the Hammer films. Um, he was he was like considered one of the big you know, horror guys. But he was um, oh god, who was the other one? It was um, there was another kind of like um, considered like a budget horror studio and oh. um it's really escaping my uh, my mind right now but vincent price had done some movies like with him and i and you know full disclosure vincent price was never really one of my favorites like you know i'd never really watched his stuff uh because there were horror movies like in the like the 50s and 60s kind of like lost something for me and i think price like did a lot of stuff in the 60s and it just wasn't really my thing because like a lot of the 50s horror movies were uh, you know, kind of like uh, more like sci-fi was bigger. So like, yeah. you know, the robots from outer space and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And they they were very like flatly filmed, too. So it's mm-hmm. like they really lacked like that depth of like, um, you know, the you know, the the visuals and the music and the, the creepiness. And it was more like kind of utilitarian. You know, it's just kind of like, you know, like aliens are going to come take over the Earth or like, you know, pods are going to come out and, you know, or the thing and stuff like that. You know, they didn't have as much atmosphere. um, We're we're talking now getting into the nuclear age where the radiation was a big scare and, uh, you know, people were building like actual bomb shelters to live in. The the fallout was a big thing. And uh, so it was it was a different era too. sci-fi was really starting to take over the horror genre, I think. Yeah, so I mean, it, it wasn't really my favorite. I'd had a couple that I liked, but um, I really liked more the straight horror, like that last one that I had kind of, yeah. um, you know, described to you, which kind of gets us into like, you know, past all that stuff into the '70s when um, bigger budget movies, and that's why like Hammer Studios and um, the other one, um, I can't remember, it was like Abe's. It was like some kind of acronym or, or something like that. Um, I'll probably remember later yeah. but um but like hammer studios and some of the more like indie films or smaller studios were being edged out by like um by the exorcist rosemary's baby like you know they these guys were like you know big budget horror movies um were jumping on the bandwagon and kind of like overtaking like these small independent productions and so they started to go away and um you know under the um uh what, what was the one with um uh, Jack Nicholson, um, The Shining, yeah, The Shining. Like mm-hmm. some of those were like big budget studio yeah. horror movies, and so right. they started to overshadow uh, movies like the ones that I was talking about, which I personally felt had a lot more, um, you know, uh, kind of atmosphere and like heart to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, these other ones were just like, you know, for for the time, anyways, you know, they had the budget to do like, you know, the the blood coming on the floor and everything, and just right. the 
you know, maybe, um, you know, special effects stunts. The Omen, you know, is another mm -hmm. one. Yeah. Um, so those type of movies um, weren't really my favorites. You know, they were a little little kind of like slick for my liking, you know, even though you had like, um, you know, uh, Mia Farrow and Gregory Peck and like you started to have the Jack Nicholson. You had these bigger names in the big studios, right? right? Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, even though something like The Exorcist was really like terrifying like i mean i was scared shitless of that when i was a kid mm -hmm. um you know because you had like you know you had the the you know the religious aspect and like you know the the devil and like you know just the creepy sound effects and the makeup and everything just all going together but also a lot of it was just kind of like very kind of like dead dead air you know what i mean like the story was right. very slow and plotting mm -hmm. to get to you know to build up to like what was really terrifying which you know honestly i came to appreciate later you know because that really bu built that sense of dread um, well i think if you if you're seeing it in the theater you're kind of going along for the ride if you're watching it at home it's a little less tolerable that build yeah. because it is very slow and i a, a couple years ago uh i i saw they had um 2001 a space odyssey for like two dollars at our, our local used used uh, shop right wow i'm like man i have not seen this since i was a kid this is going to be amazing 30 goddamn minutes of monkeys staring at us at pole and i'm like this is how did anybody think this was great art this is way too slow of a build like you could have done this in three minutes in and out we're in space you know yeah um and i just i couldn't hang with it i, I watched maybe 10 minutes of it and i just started fast forwarding through it i'm like they're still looking at this pole <laughs> like, I mean, it was just so slow. But had I been in the theater, the anticipation would have been building, especially when it was, you know, when it was first released. I think the first mm -hmm. time I saw it was on television, you know, when, when it came out on network TV. But um, yeah, some of those, there, there's a strategy to it and there's a, a benefit to a build, but it, it's got to move at a pace that's worth sitting through all that. And The Exorcist, interestingly, I think was. Whereas 2001, no, I don't think that anything's worth me watching monkeys for half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, that was the type of stuff that was really dominating like the 70s. Yeah. And then you get into the late 70s and the early 80s where you get into like the slasher movies, which became really big. Well, before um, you get to there, I, I have an exorcist story. Yes. So years ago, um, a friend of mine was doing a, uh, a comic convention. She does. She does. Was doing all of them at the time, and um, she was doing one in in uh, Tempe, Arizona. And I lived pretty close there. And, and I found out Linda Blair was going to be there because I, I said, "Well, I'll, I'll come down and visit you. You know, see if you need anything." Because she was she was going to be by herself, and she's stuck in this booth. You can't get out and get food or whatever. So I said, "I'll come by and check on you." So I found out Linda Blair was going to be there, and I'm like, "Well, I got to meet Linda Blair." Like, how do you how do you not do that? Yeah. So uh, I go check out my friend. I'm like, I'm going to go meet Linda Blair and then I'll come back. I don't know how long the line's going to be. I don't know how long it'll take. So I get there and, and it was a pretty small convention. There weren't a lot of people at that time. And, and so I didn't have to wait very long. And this guy, uh, you know, you you um, you want to support them. They're there to make money, you know, as well as as greet their fans and stuff. So, you know, I bought a picture for her to sign and um I, I saw they had the uh, the cover of The Exorcist is one of the pictures that you could get. And um, I don't know who the guy was that was with her. And I really wish I'd have found out because he must have been somebody that was involved with that picture. Because uh, I was looking at it and he goes, do you like that one? I said, yeah. He goes, let me ask you this. Who's in that picture? And I said, well, that's Max von Sydow. And he goes, 
Nope. Max von Saito didn't show up until the day after that picture was taken. And I look at it again. I'm like, I think you're wrong because that's Max von Saito. Like I'm looking at the shape of the guy. Like they, and I don't know if they doctored it maybe a little bit to to be more his shape, whoever the stand-in was. But it was not Max von Saito. And and I don't know. He goes, no oh. one knows for sure who it was. I mean, it could have been just like a, a guy that was on set. They're like, hey, can you stand in there so we can take the shot? We're going to fix it later. Huh. And I'm like, I don't know who it was. It was actually in the picture. So I met Linda. She was super sweet. Um, she kept asking me if I had seen Repossessed, which was her her comic film that she did with um, Leslie Nielsen. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I just watched that a couple weeks ago. I said, but uh, I, I also watched Night Patrol last night. She goes, oh, yeah, Night Patrol was good. Hey, did you watch Repossessed? I'm like, yeah, I just told you I watched it like two weeks ago. <laughs> and then I met, um, I, I don't know how to say the guy's name, so I'm not going to say it. And, and this will go to one of my picks later. Uh, but I, I met the guy that was Leatherface in the first reboot series of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So the oh. Jessica Biel one and and then the prequel that they did after that. Um, he was also in Any Given Sunday. He was one of the football players. Really big, big guy. I mean, just like physically has a really big frame. And I I wish I'd have never met him. Really? <laughs> I don't know what, what was going on with him. He was not all there. And apparently uh, the next day he ended up getting kicked out of the convention for being huh. belligerent. And uh, it, was, it was not a good good time in his life. So, huh. um, But yeah, so I, I got to meet Linda Blair, which was a really cool moment. Um, yeah, that's my exorcist story. <laughs> <laughs> well, who, who who knows who's on that poster then? Yeah, I'm really curious. I'll have to do some digging and see if maybe there's maybe somebody's come up with an answer. It seems like even if they just said it was like some guy on set, I'd be like, okay, at least we know you know who it was. But it was probably just a stand-in. You know, you you uh, you brought up the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I almost forgot about, just because that's like um, that was like seventies. Like yeah. um, I can't remember, was it? Yeah, it was early to mid seventies, I think. I think so. Yeah, the, ori- and, the original um, one, I think, was seventy eight, maybe. Yeah, I think so. It was um, now I got now I got to look. Um, that was a breakthrough film. Um, I yeah, first... that was seventy four. Yeah. Oh, seventy four. Okay. Yeah, I first so. heard of that film. I don't know if you if you'd seen it because back in the eighties they used to do these uh, like compilation movies that would kind of promote the horror genre, mm-hmm. and there was one with Donald Pleasance and uh, one of the people from Carrie, and it was called Terror in the Isles, and uh, Nancy Allen, and they're in a movie theater and they're just like talking and then they'll show some scenes from horror films and they showed what I consider to be the greatest scene in any horror movie to this day which is the first reveal of Leatherface. Wow. When he just comes out and smacks that person with the hammer and then the way he slams that metal door, that moment, to me, is the greatest scene in any horror film I've ever seen. Yeah, I'll have to say that that was pretty, um, that was pretty, like, effective. It was very frightening. Um, I remember the first time seeing that because up until then, it was just a bunch of hippie hitchhikers, you know, and this kind of abandoned house and everything. And you're going in there and you're like, all right, this is kind of creepy. And then when the, when he comes out and does that, it was just like, like not even 10 seconds. And you're just like, whoa, what just happened? Because you don't even know what you're dealing with. Like, is it a person? Is it a beast? He has a really weird face. Is he deformed? Yeah. Is he mental? Like, you have no idea. You just know that that guy's big and he has a hammer and he doesn't like people. 
Yeah. And that's, um, I remember the one of the first times I saw it, um, which I had some friends over for a sleepover and I had to have been in high school. And um, I don't know, maybe like some of us fell asleep or anything, but I just remember waking up to like that scene. Oh, wow. Like, you know, like the movie was kind of like slow. So it's, you know, you kind of drift off or whatever. And I woke up to that scene and then like the rest of it, like the, the chainsaw, like, you know, um, him, him chasing the girl and everything like that. And it was just like, what the fuck am I even watching right now? Like, this is terrifying, mm-hmm. which was like, you know, like, I, I think that that's like kind of a very specific memory or way of seeing like certain horror oh, films, yeah. like, you know, going for the first time and like watching it and being like, oh, but also like you know being at a, a friend's sleepover and kind of like dozing off and waking up halfway through like one of the most horrifying scenes and that like that affecting you yeah. too oh sure and like holy shit you know well, and, and it was such a that was like the first really powerful murder movie you know that that was that graphic and um i think part of what what bothered me about it was that I was under the impression, of course, we didn't have the internet or, or really anything to research with back then, but I was under the impression that that was a true story. And I, now, of mm. course, I know it was just like so subtly based on Ed Gein, but because right. uh, he never really killed anybody. He, he, well, I think he killed one person, um, but he was a grave robber. But mm-hmm. everybody thinks of him as this mass murderer because his story has been used in all these horror films, you know? Right, right. Uh, still not somebody I'd hang out with, but <laughs> not, not the right impression of the guy. Um, but but just thinking, like watching this movie and thinking, oh my God, this actually happened to people. Yeah. That's, that put a reality in it for me. Yeah. And that, that was another one too. Like, what if I was in this situation? You know, if yeah. my car had broken down and I got separated from my friends and I was in this, this farmhouse with these insane people, like, you know, basically like, uh, like torturing me, like psychologically torturing me, mm-hmm. like... Uh, you know, you're like, what would I even do? You know, yeah. you can't even wrap your head around it. So yeah. that was that was definitely like uh, another turning point. For um, sure. Uh, I, I will jump ahead just briefly and, and talk about uh, the, the reboot of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the beginning, which was the follow up to the Jessica Biel movie. Um, so this would be the prequel to that. So Jessica mm-hmm. Biel's was kind of a remake of the, the 74 classic. And then this was the prequel story. Uh, I did, a, I think, a two-part episode on this last year or the year before. That is one of the best horror scores. I, I'm going to go out to say it is the best horror score of any movie. And wow. Steve Jablonski did it. Uh, he also scored all the... Tra- well, um, hang on. Excuse me. Uh, almost all the Transformers movies. He didn't do the most recent one, but he did all the, the other ones. He did uh, Desperate Housewives. He did uh, Ender's Game, all kinds of stuff. He did, um, um, I think Transformers was, oh, uh, The Island, which was the other movie that made me want to be a film composer. So The Island and and the original miniseries of it. Um, But that score, like, check it out. It is unbelievable. Hmm. Absolutely unbelievable. My second would be The Shining. I think the music to The Shining is just untouchable. Untouchable. Uh, But yeah, so, so Texas Chainsaw Massacre comes out. Uh, we had a little gap because I think Halloween was 78. Halloween was 78. So now we're, we're jumping ahead a little bit. So Halloween was like the uh, almost like the precursor to the slasher films of the 80s, mm-hmm. um, which Hall- the original Halloween, one of my favorites, hands down, because that really exemplifies what like a horror movie should be. Yeah. Um, 
and it really relied on like a lot of what it built on from those earlier movies that we talked about from like the 20s and 30s was is like what you what you didn't see um and what i liked about it was is if you hear if you read about any of the behind the scenes stuff was is like that that production was like really industrious like they had to like they had to really go through everything with like a like a shoestring budget and a can do attitude it's like yeah. um Jamie Lee Curtis had to buy her buy all of her own clothes uh mm-hmm. for the role like they didn't costume her just like here's some you know here's like 100 bucks go to JC Penney right. um and yeah. you know you're you're going to decide what to wear mm-hmm. um the infamous story of them needing a mask for the killer and getting the William Shatner mask and spray painting it and cutting the eyes out right. i mean that's like that's having to basically work with what you have and like th- that forces you to be really creative and those are the things that i think make the lasting impression as opposed to having millions of dollars and a big think tank and you know everybody throwing their their opinions in and like you know tweaking all the effects and everything like that's what makes gives a movie like real personality and yeah. that's why i think it holds up well i think that and and they made you feel like you were there you yeah know, like you were a part of it you almost felt the the crisp autumn air yeah even if you were in a heated house watching that movie because so much of it was outside uh you've got the the fall leaves everywhere and they did such a good job bringing a reality to that and also the score i mean without without the halloween theme mm-hmm. you know i mean that was a a major component uh the, the halloween theme and, and the, there was another piece in there um which was a slower piece that they used in the middle of the score uh i can't remember if that was in the original or if that didn't come out until part two um but the the music the again they showed you enough to give you an understanding without mm-hmm. showing you too much right it was it was starting to show you a little more than psycho but not as much as like saw right and then you had um and then you had donald pleasance in there who was like another great actor who was in, who was in some of those hammer films that i had mentioned mm-hmm. like early on yeah. and um you know just really adding like a like a like an like an air of like legitimacy to it because like another just like just great actor and he he just comes in and he's just like the the voice of reason like we have we have to stop him he's like he's he's otherworldly he's evil and he's just like and you believe him because you're just like all right this guy is like he's like obsessed with stopping him and he like he he's known him for 15 years whatever like you got to stop him and you know there's and a lot of that light and shadow like a lot of the movie was like in darkness and so it really kind of gave you that um at least for the time because that was around um that was around the time that i grew up like it was a couple yeah. of years that came out a couple of years after i was born but i mean you still had the that the the feeling like you said the crisp autumn night but it would give you like the 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 kind of the dark house or the dark outside was kind of like gave you that feeling of being home alone mm-hmm. like without your parents like with the with the lights being really dim and it just kind of being like this kind of creepy evening yeah. you know it really set the tone really well yeah and then when she when she stabs him in the eye with the coat hanger and you think he's down and then the way that he just gets up like the undertaker yeah he's just like all right that was fun now i'm serious you know yeah but i think donald pleasance was a big key to that movie too because the way he described michael i mean you felt so much fear 
coming out of this man, I mean, classically trained actor, very talented mm-hmm. guy. They really nailed the casting on this movie. Because when I when I listen to you know other actors and they're talking about like the history of whatever the killer is or whatever, I've never heard anybody deliver a speech like the way Donald Pleasance did. That was yeah. gold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he really, you know, he cemented that movie. You know, I mean, it's just a, it's one of those things where like all these different elements got together and it just worked. Yeah. Where, where it becomes confusing is now there's been five different offshoots of Halloween and some of them all some of them start from the original timeline and then branch yeah. off into their own thing. Jamie Lee Curtis has been in three different series yeah that partially do and partially don't like it's the whole the the Halloween universe has gotten very confusing. Yeah, uh, you mean, know. Then I, I did think it was really cool, though, that when Rob Zombie went to do his um, his versions, his reboots, that he brought Daniel Harris back, who was in parts four and five of the original series. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you have Halloween three, which nobody counts because it had no. nothing to do with anything. Um, but I thought I, liked, I thought that was cool. I liked two because it had mm-hmm. Jamie Lee Curtis. It was a continuation yeah. of the same night. It had the same right. feel and. It was in a hospital, mm-hmm. single setting in a hospital. So yeah. I thought it had a very similar feel to it. So even though the original sequel was kind of discounted, I thought that it was um, I thought it was really good because yeah. you had a lot of the same like team or almost the same team working on it. Mm-hmm. And it was only a couple of years later. Um, and so I, and I don't know why close. they discounted that movie in the last in, in the final series with Halloween ends. I don't know why they discounted the second movie. There's no reason those events didn't happen yeah the the i was really excited to hear when jamie lee curtis was coming back to the franchise and having the the movies made over the past few years and i was like you know i i of course i saw them and overall was kind of disappointed um like i feel like they could have done like one and wrapped it up and instead they kind of dragged it out over a couple of more movies and yeah you know it didn't really i mean they were they weren't they were they were okay you know what i mean it was it was cool to see, but I, I didn't like the H2O series very much. Um, no. I mean, the, the whole thing with all the people like Coolio, I think, was in it. And, you know, like all the, the people in the uh, in the house doing the cameras and stuff like it was just such a here's how we shoot modern horror film. It didn't really feel it didn't have yeah. that naturalness. Uh, I liked the idea of the new series. I didn't like the way it ended. I didn't like the way the the second to the last movie ended with like yeah. her realizing that that he's uh, not a human being, that he's yeah. like some kind of mythical creature. And I'm like, but where did that come from? How does that happen? Yeah, you know, I I that kind of lost me there. And and the last one, I thought, well, I know it's going to end. She's going to finally get victory over him because she has to, at yeah. some point, you know. So, yeah, I mean that. Mm. You know, that was, um, but I mean, I think originally, like the original, you know, was always uh, for me the best. Um, yeah. And then, the first two, um, I, w- I, I would say the first two. Yeah. Were, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, um, and I mean, you know, when you're coming into the, the early 80s now, these are the ones that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you, um, you have Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, which yeah. are two of the big ones for me and again like the first the first couple of each one were my favorites and then once you get past like two or three i'm kind of kind of out you know um well let me let me ask you how you're doing on time because i know you have to work today um i got about i could probably do another 15 
Okay, perfect. Um, I think the big confusion over Friday the 13th is that, that people focus so much on the Jason character. Yeah. He wasn't even in the first one. And, and that's that's a big like that's a big like kind of gotcha for everybody. It's like, hey, do you know that Jason wasn't even? Yeah, we know it was Betsy Palmer, right? It was but, Jason's yeah. But mom. people are still like, oh, I remember Jason in the first. Like, no, he he wasn't. The hockey he mask was, wasn't even until it wasn't even like the, until the third, third or fourth one. one. Yeah, the yeah. third. Yeah. But because, let me ask you though. Yeah. Okay, so the end of the first one, the the girl she kills the mom. You know, uh, great decapitation scene, by the way. Yeah. But she's in the boat. And then, you know, Jason comes up out of the water and and, and in her dream sequence. I have a hard time. It's like they always have to try and get you one last scare. Mm -hmm. They can't just end the story and go, we'll pick it up in the next one. They they always take it one step too far. Yeah. You know, Misery did that, too, with with, uh, you know, him in in the restaurant at the end. And and she's the waitress. Yeah. Uh, And and I'm like, just leave it, you know, just stop it. I mean, I didn't I didn't mind it that much. Um, I thought like going back and seeing it later and realizing like um, when I was older that, okay, Jason wasn't actually in the first one. I thought it was much creepier having her acting, uh, kind of having that dual uh, kind of personality with her son, almost like a reverse Norman Bates type of thing. Yeah. Um, And I thought that the score also mirrored another callback to Psycho was is like that. Um, that score was all stringed instruments, which was also what happened in Psycho. Right. So I thought that that was very, uh, a kind of a cool uh, callback or something that, unless you're a real film nerd, you wouldn't really notice that. But that's what really made, I think, the the original Friday the 13th um, uh, very um, unnerving because it was it was just all like those, the, that, that really frenzied string instrument um, kind of intro. And then, you know, when you have the, you know, Mm -hmm. and then you have the little guitar strum under it, you know, it was, Mm -hmm. um, it was like, wow. And, and that was really another breakthrough movie because I mean, first of all, it was the first camp movie, but it took that, that isolation from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where you've got your Mm -hmm. group of people, you've got a legitimate reason to be where they're at got a legend that they're starting with that that now it's it's so cliche when they tell the legend of whatever the creature is at the beginning of the movie you already know how it's going to play out um but this this was where you look at it now and you're like well the special effects aren't that great and the movie doesn't really move that fast but in the the late 70s or whenever it came out that was groundbreaking there was Mm -hmm. nothing like that before that came out Mm -hmm. no absolutely i think that um that was um that that first that first one was um i, I think un, unparalleled because then everything that it built on after that just kind of like it kept it just kept diluting it yeah um uh i mean there were some there were some decent uh, drive-in type scares like if you wanted to like there was like the 3d one right yeah um, and stuff like that uh there were some there were some decent ones where it's if there was like i, I remember when when it was friday when friday the 13th like when the 13th fell on a friday there would be um and i'm sure it just didn't happen here local uh, channel 38 or whatever it was local station would always run a friday the 13th marathon yeah on tv of the movies mm-hmm. and i always get so excited and watch all of them it didn't matter if they sucked you know right. it was just like it was horror movies cool mm. um but um i think after that um i mean i think i I can't honestly i can't remember what 
uh, two, three, four, and on were all about. I just remember the first one distinctly. Well, um, you, they only get they only get specifically memorable when you get to like uh, Jason Takes Manhattan or Jason X, which was in space, because those are very specific. Said the rest of them are like, I don't yeah. know if this camp death was in this movie or that movie, but I'll tell you something interesting uh, about the series. I read the book to Friday the Thirteenth Part oh. Six, I think it was, mm-hmm. and that's the one where they start out. Uh, Tom Matthews, who was in the Return of the Living Dead movies. He, uh, he comes out and they dig Jason up and they put that metal pole in him, which of course gets hit by lightning and and they bring him back to life while trying to make sure he's dead. Uh, crazy premise. But I mean, if you if you accept that this guy even exists, you kind of just are like, all right, I, I'm agreeing to whatever I'm walking into. Right, you know? right. But the book was really interesting because the book told the story from the perspective of Jason. Everything mm. else was kind of narrated so you knew what was going on. Okay. The whole thing was he just wanted them to leave him alone. He just wanted to be dead and be at peace. And people keep waking him up. So he's got to kill everybody so <laughs> that he'll be left alone. When you start no. to, to change the perspective now, he's not just this machine or, or, you know, monster killer. He's like, all I want you to do is stop messing with me. And if you quit doing it, I'll quit doing it. We'll all be happy. And he's he's not getting what he wants. So he's like, all right, well, fine. Then I'll just get rid of everybody until there's no one around to wake me up. The um, well, you know what? I'll get to I'll get to that. Uh, the 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 other one later, because to get to that, we have to talk to uh, the Freddy versus Jason. You have to talk about Freddy. Right. Um, which um, I mean, Nightmare on Elm Street, one of my absolute favorites. Um, the first three movies are like untouched in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, I don't know which one I like better, the the original or three, um, because uh, the third one again set in a mental hospital. Right. Um, Dokken was uh, had the the Dream Warriors and uh, Vinnie oh, Vincent yeah. Invasion had uh, Love Kills on the soundtrack. So, mm-hmm. like, it was right around that time where it was like. I was I was into the music, and so you had the music, you had the mental hospital, you had the the whole thing going on. Uh, young Patricia Arquette, so it, it's just like um, you know that that movie to me with the third one was like perfect. Um, so, um, but I would say the the first one was probably the most classic, but my favorite that I have the most memories with are probably the third. I think it's interesting too that that the first one uh, was Johnny Depp's first movie. I mean, that was yep. like here's some guy. He's just a, a guy that that gets killed. He's the boyfriend of the lead actress. Yeah, would never think by looking at that movie that he would go on to have the career because he was just another actor in a horror film. You know, no big yep. deal at all. Yeah, um, and then to have the career that he's gone on to have is just phenomenal. Yeah, you know? well, it's just like Kevin Bacon in the original Friday the Thirteenth. That's right. Yeah, or Jennifer Aniston in the first Leprechaun movie. Yeah, yeah. You, know? you just who know? You know, everybody right. get their gets their start somewhere, right? So yeah, exactly. But that was was. Am I wrong in thinking that the first sarcastic killer would be Freddy, the first one that made jokes and? I think like so. That. Even though the very the very first one, he was a lot more dark. Like yeah. he, you know, he was just like he, he wouldn't come around the corner and just be like. Um, uh, you know, cracking cracking jokes or like, but I mean, you could tell he was taking um, he was taking glee in 
chasing them and torturing them like in that opening scene with uh with nancy in the first one mm-hmm. where he's like running after her and he's like he's he's wielding his fingers and he's like he's he's cackling and laughing like he's enjoying yeah. it because he's mm-hmm. he's he's fucking crazy he's a child murderer he he mm-hmm. gets off on it yeah so but he doesn't do like the quips and stuff he does like later on yeah um you know, being like, you know, welcome to my world, bitch, you know, and right. all that kind of Yeah, okay. well, that kind of developed over time. I, I don't know if that started in the second movie or not, but it the, the franchise definitely changed. If you look at the later movies that were in that yeah. series compared to the first one, they're a completely different style of mm-hmm. movie. But I mean, I thought that um, I thought the concept of, um, you know, somebody invading like a like a group, a group of people's dreams and killing them in their sleep, yeah. I, I think was very... Um, almost almost going back to the beginning of cinema, you know, very kind of surreal, yeah. surrealistic, you know, uh, kind of uh, this this otherworldly concept, even though like, you know, stabbing Jason or Michael Myers and then they, they come back to life is one, like one thing, but it's like, okay, well, now we're not even talking on the same like plane of reality. We're talking about right. people's like dreams. Yeah. And um, I thought that there were a lot of like crazy uh, concepts in that, that the only thing that I've come to accept from that movie and it makes the movie but one would think like well how much better would this movie be is is like the woman who played the mother was like the worst actress i've ever seen <laughs> like she was like she was terrible i had actually seen it recently and she's just like nancy you've got to get some sleep and it's like oh my god i could act better than this fucking lady <laughs> did she do that thing they did in the 80s where they had the sweater that they just wrapped over the their their front and they just wore it like a like a coat almost i mean probably yeah she was but i mean you had like i mean the the heather langenkamp was like really good as the the young lead Mm -hmm. uh john saxon was like really good um who had done enter the dragon with bruce lee not not long before that you know yeah even even um even johnny depp you know as a young actor the other guys i mean they were they were pretty good and then you had this just this ham who was just uh, this horrible actress (laughs) actress <laughs> but but this was also the first movie if i'm not mistaken uh with real special effects i mean some really first time seeing this kind of stuff yeah like the um the yeah the the woman um uh, getting the girl getting dragged across the ceiling mm-hmm. uh the blood exploding out of the bed uh yeah. when when uh in johnny depp's scene um uh, the the uh, the the mother or or Freddie falling into the into the bed and the, or the mother like kind of like lowering or descending into the bed with the the cloud. I mean the uh, the the smoke and everything. I mean they weren't like top notch, but I mean um, even even like Freddie's like uh, flamed footprints like toward the end going up the stairs. Mm-hmm. I mean some there was some pretty cool stuff, and I feel oh, like yeah. you know I, I feel like they could have taken a lot of liberties with doing special effects because you're like okay this is like this is the dream world so like anything is possible well i think that's the advantage too is that that if you're in a certain universe things have to make sense within the context of that universe like i mentioned the the shark screaming sharks can't scream so right now you've lost me in that movie um but but in a world like this you're basically saying you can dream anything so you can put anything you want in this film you can have the pictures just start melting for no reason because that's what's in the dream but also this takes that isolation I've been talking about to a whole nother level because where in your life are you the most vulnerable you're sleeping. Yeah. And that added, that just escalated at times 10, the whole, the whole thing for me. I thought that was such a brilliant concept 
mm-hmm. then from there, you can write anything you want into the script. No, and they did. And they did. <laughs> yeah, and they pulled it off. I mean, you're right. The, looking at it now, um, the effects look a little bit cheesy only because of what we have now. But if you put yourself in 1981, 82, some pretty amazing effects. I mean, I think so. I mean, um, uh, when I watch movies from that era, I never think like, I mean, you notice, you notice that there's just like, oh, okay, that's that's obviously fake or that's not up to the level of what you would see now. But you got to suspend your disbelief. You have to take your mind and put it into like, okay, I'm going to watch this movie and understand what era it's from. Right. Um, and, the, and there's something endearing about it too. Like you don't you don't want that movie to be perfect. You don't want them to go back and, and George Lucas it. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. That would, that would ruin it. Exactly. Like, we'll we'll let people reboot it and then do it the way they want to, and that's fine. But don't. Yeah, touch... and then I won't. Yeah, and then I won't go watch it. So yeah, leave the classics alone. You want to redo it? Fine. If you can get the rights or whatever. But like, I think Rob Zombie did a really good job with Halloween. I, I really do. It was a, a slightly different movie. I have. I just. I have issues with the whole. How is Michael Myers supernatural when he's not? When he has no story to be supernatural. Mm-hmm. He wasn't struck by lightning. Nothing magical happened to him. How is this stuff possible? Yeah. And it's, you know. yeah, exactly. And they never really explained that. Yeah. Um, Jason was, was dead. Of... Jason came back from the dead. Right. So he was already dead to begin with. So I can say, all right, well, you can stab him in the neck and he's going to be like, okay, don't do that. I don't like that. And he's going to keep moving. I can buy that because that makes sense in that universe. The one thing I never understood about Michael Myers was how is he getting up after he's been shot or stabbed in the neck or poked in the eye like that universe right, because, never made sense to me well right because he was he was just a messed up little kid who right. killed his sister was sent to an insane asylum grew up in isolation and you know being talked to by doctors and therapists and stuff and now all of a sudden it's just an unkillable monster yeah i mean i i get that mentally he's gone but that doesn't make you have superhuman strength that doesn't make you have the ability to drive a car you know, right. and the, I, I don't know. I, I think there's things I love about that series, but if you really sit down and think about it, there's some real big plot holes. But yeah. again, you know, you have to for the for the sake of enjoying the movie, you want to probably just overlook those. I mean, you have to, you know, have to suspend them. Yeah, you have to say I'm I'm walking into this. Like, if I can accept Star Wars, if I can walk into a Star Wars movie and accept everything that's going on there, yeah. I should be able to just accept, okay, well, whatever, for whatever reason, and, he's and this way. Now that I know that, let's just accept it and watch the movie. But sometimes I, when I come out of the movie, like if, if there's a scene where I'm like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm at home watching a movie. I'm not in, I'm not there. Mm-hmm. Um, I do start to think about those things. I'm like, wait a minute, though. <laughs> you know, and I, right, I, I which, don't try I mean, to be analytical. I just, it just happens. But I mean, it's a great thing about movies and, and TV is, is that uh, once you're out of that universe or even sometimes when you're in it, you're like, that would never happen. But I mean, yeah. you know, it's just like you have to suspend disbelief for these things. Otherwise, it's like, what's the point of movies and entertainment? Right. Right. Yeah. But it's well, supposed to be real. I think and I think there's a difference between if it was in a book. I think it's easier to accept in a book because you're not watching it. When you're watching it, you're convincing yourself that you're watching reality. Right. So I think it's harder to accept as a visual than it would be as as words. Um, but I hate to I hate to end this because we're on such a roll. But I know you got to go, so we're gonna have to uh, we're gonna have to pick this up whether we do it this year or next year. I don't know yet. We'll have to talk. Oh, but, well, uh, we're gonna we're gonna have man. to save my thoughts on Freddy versus Jason for a year from now. Oh, 
maybe not. We'll see. Uh, but yeah, because uh, we're we're getting into a really uh, a really amazing time in the horror world where yeah. horror films were just kind of exploding. Uh, a lot of things were border. Like E.T. has its moments where it's kind of like there's some stuff in here where that could be really scary for some young kids and that kind of yeah. stuff. So there's everything started to have a little touch of it. Yeah. But horror movies were once again about to explode because yeah. people found the value. Studios are like, uh, people are loving this. Let's jump on this. Let's get everything out we can right now. Give me your scripts today. Yeah. You know? So, well, thank you, John. Uh, oh, if, thank you. If we uh, don't do this again until next year, happy Halloween. If we do this again before next year, uh, happy Halloween. You too. <laughs> oh, I, that, yeah, I have, I have so much fun. I never get to talk about this stuff anymore. Just talk film and talk horror movies. I haven't in like so long. So this was uh, so much fun. Thank you. Yeah, and I never talked to anybody. So this is a lot of fun for me too. <laughs> we'll do this again, my friend. Uh, in the yes. meantime, have a great day, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, we'll see if there's another episode this year or not. Because as of right this moment, I don't know, but we'll find out. Cheers. <laughs>